From 11FS, I'm Sarah Koshansky, and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you Starling's secret project, Warren Buffett invests in Paytm, sort of, and are checks checking out? All this and much more on today's show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Fintech Insider News, brought to you in partnership with the good people from Microsoft Azure. We are coming to you live from the 11FS offices in WeWork Oldgate in London, England. Before we get started, if you have any questions for us to answer about fintech, finance or even your favourite cocktails or our favourite cocktails, do drop us an email at podcast at 11FS.com or find us on social media. My name is Sarah Koshansky and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host Simon Taylor. How are you doing today, Simon? I'm, I'm a little bit tired, but that's good because I've had an epic week delivering stuff. Um, we've been really crunching through some exciting work. And um, I'm moving house this weekend, so it's going to be very, very busy for me. Oh, I hate moving house. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a tough boxes. one, but it's worth it, trust me. Um, as always, we are not alone. We are joined in the room by some fantastic friends. We have Ryan Edwards-Pritchard, Managing Director of Funding Options. How are you today, Ryan? Very good. Uh, great to be back. Thank you for coming back. And Alexa Fernandez, who is making her debut. Um, she is the Open Innovation and Ecosystem Builder at BBVA. How are you today, Alexa? Very excited to be here. We are going to start with Starling's Secret Project. So this story came from The Times, um, and it is that online challenger Starling Bank is going to help RBS with their new digital bank. So RBS has enlisted, according to rumours, the online-only challenger Starling to assist in its secret project to build a standalone digital bank. Starling has signed a contract to provide payment services to support new initiatives at RBS slash NatWest. So the RBS brand will disappear from British High Street soon. <laughs> we'll be left with NatWest. But they are, in fact, the same company. The digital bank, uh, this comes the same week the digital bank released its annual report. So all sorts of numbers out there about Starling. Um, and this only adds to the hype, I think. Um, anybody have any initial thoughts off the bat? Alexa, go for it. One of those numbers that was released was Anne's Bowden's salary, which is 290000 a year. That is so low in comparison to most UK bank CEOs. Like, I think it ranges between $1 million as a base with a total compensation of anywhere between 2.5 to $5 million. Puts a squarely in the um, senior professional range rather than the ridiculously rich range. And I know it's like a startup bank, and but I just thought that was really interesting it, as yeah. a number worth commenting. I guess what would be interesting in seen is how does that compare against her pay group because again to that point it's such a different thing in terms of salaries of ceos from you know the, well, the big nine as opposed to say the challenger banks and where that's at i'd have no idea and also you've got to value the equity right what double digit equity in a company that's worth what you know raising at what um that that's got to be worth something as well so uh, a lot of senior um, bank execs are compensated partially in shares but those shares aren't likely to 10x anytime soon so um, there is a bit of a different equation the thing that struck me about this story is the headline is online challenger stalling to help with rbs digital bank and building a standalone bank isn't mentioned and then the contract they've signed is to provide payment services to support new initiatives do those two sentences contradict for anybody else? Not for me, because I know that oh, I think that I know Starling's plan. What's Starling's secret plan? That they don't really want to be a retail bank. They want to be a banking as a service provider. And that's what they launched in August of this year with the whole, like, we will give you, we will issue you cards. We will let you piggyback on our license. We will, you know, if you're a, if you're a retailer, we'll connect you to faster payments. If you're a fintech, we'll let you use our uh, licenses and, and all that kind of thing. So, so I know so, they ha- have the beginnings of like a, a marketplace and they're looking to do a payments APIs a bit like the yeah they've, they've got two very distinct businesses they've got the retail bank which I think is kind of for show and like the media loves a retail bank and then underneath it all they've got some really quite serious stack going on that other people are using and and they would like more people to use and I think for them this is like this big RBS to them must be a huge coup the they're RBS the first ones them. really to kind of go down that route right from all of the challenger banks they're all going down yeah. the traditional well, route unless you count Clearbank right but Clearbank kind of went different category different. right yeah, yeah they, 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 they started they, they kind of concentrated on being that rather than being and the, a, and the way Starling always markets itself is we're a tech company not a bank so it does make sense i think it's smart from an rbs perspective though it, it is uh, it's a different strategy to what you see out in the market with the other channel well the other major banks right now where it's not just about kind of faster horses in the sense of actually just making some functional changes here and there where actually they're adopting the technology i do agree with simon's point in terms of 
like there is a bit of a conundrum there like what does it actually mean but actually if you look at it could it be that this is a trojan horse effect going there with payments to begin with and then actually what you find is that rbs just kind of starts utilizing them more and more for different areas than before you know it starling's there covering everything like, I, I absolutely buy that the legacy infrastructure and processes of these banks the banks totally recognize they've got that challenge and they've got a lot of people inside those organizations trying to build new things themselves they've got a lot of talented people there trying to trying to do it and if somebody can give them the tooling it makes sense just the timing of this one struck me as interesting this headline seems to land right around the time that they do publish a load of numbers and they announce that they're looking for funding oh yeah but it's it's classic starling 2018 it is the the year of starling you know if you look at 2017 year of monzo i don't know like you can't help but look in the media and just I say week in, week out, it feels like right now as opposed to month in, month out, there is some news piece, and it's not a puff piece, it's a genuine like story going out about somewhere that Stalin's executing. Isn't it even today, uh, they had two new pieces. One is that they have... Um obviously caught up with Monzo so they're doing six day accounts for 16 to 17 year olds launch today and um, the second piece which has completely escaped me but I can look it up the two pieces of news today so they had the annual report on Monday this week which was a bank holiday but they went ahead with it this news story came out over the weekend and then today three day, or three or four days later they've got another story but but is this because they're in the need of that next round like because the problem with building a bank is it's hard and it costs a lot of money um, you know the, the thing that's buried in the report is the pre-tax loss of 11.6 million which compares with Monzo that I think had something like 20 million over the course of the year. You know, they burn cash to these businesses before they become profitable. Um, and their numbers here around, they've got um, just short of, I think, 200, uh, 210,000 customers, I believe. Um, so there's... Uh, retail customers, yeah. 210,000 retail customers. So what's the profit and loss and the margin? How many the- businesses are they actually selling their fast services too. That's what they're not telling you. So there's a couple of interesting things here. One is that they're not telling you that. The other is that the way that Starling's funding worked is works is that an all almost all of it or a huge chunk of it comes from Harold McPike I think his name is who is um, a, a, a great fund name. manager I Strong. believe um, but he has pledged a huge amount of money to them but it has gates so they only yeah. get it when they get through certain gates after certain gates after certain gates so I don't know whether like whether because it was kind of a rumour that they're looking for funding they didn't have to come out and said it so I think whether this that's actually true or whether they're laying the ground to say that that next amount is coming from that guy or led by that guy because they've reached this whatever milestone the key here is unit economics um so you know if your unit economics are not making sense and you need money then will you get to profit once you get that money and can you prove it or are your unit economics not making sense for a little while so you need to find other business models as well which is why you see spinning out into other areas and i can't see beneath this um, and see what's going on but the one thing consistently is people that i talk to that use starling's product really really like it so if you've got a, a core base of people that use it and it works and it's real time they've got a platform where you can see the logic and you can see how they'd get there but how much under interest so banking as a service mm-hmm. so i've heard uh, rumors of like different contracts out there more so specifically within the lentech space where you might see annual contracts roughly five million pounds you know being paid by some of the banks you know how much money could they make by going down that bank as a service route and it, it's a long you know sales cycle to get in there they're not going to make that much money off the small fintechs who are clearly their first kind of clients but the big money is going to come from those well, corporates or the like rbs that's yeah. it that you've hit the motherload from the beginning they could break yeah. even from pretty that. early yeah. on look at the market cap of the big payments players and the market cap of the big um technology providers and, and vendors you know if you look at a temenos a fiserv um a first data a thesis all those sorts of companies your market cap somewhere between the 10 and 30 billion mark right the, there's significant revenues to be gained in being a vendor to banks there's money to be made but i think the key is you've got to be displacing a lot of cost and you've got to be delivering a lot of experience and you've got to find a way to get from a to b because the really scary thing is nobody wants to do that transformation that goes wrong i wonder how many competitors are in the uk right now it's really just so it's clear bank uh we have um you got solaris Wirecard. solaris oh, is not Germany. in the that's eu Ger- still for now okay. they're, they're yeah. mostly eu licensed so Wirecard that does a bit you'd have form stuff. three who do some similar stuff but they're kind of abstracting something from somebody else and they're not as well known um you've kind of got a couple of players like lavaris and mambu who do more of the core banking stuff less than the payment side um but you've probably not got somebody that can say can point to live working hundreds of thousands of customers regulated thing 
So they're in an interesting spot. Well, to keep us sort of on the same subject, but to shift it back over to that uh, retail perspective, the next story comes from The Telegraph. um, And the headline is, and I think this is a little bit misleading, but it says, are Monzo and Starling the future of banking or will the high street bite back? So um, the premise of this story is that the new wave of digital-only challenges, we've just been through almost all of them, I think, um, is threatening to change the high street bank's position as a fixture of the British financial experience. So Monzo expects to have opened 1.5 million current accounts by the end of the year. They are currently, and I checked this just before we started recording, on 925,465 current accounts open. Starling, as we said, is on 210,000. Um, and then this, the, the article goes on to talk about, well, the high street's fighting back because HSBC launched Connected Money, um, which is an app which aggregates all your accounts in one place. So you can see your overview of your financial position. To me, that doesn't feel like it's a fighting back that feels like a slightly different play you know the the, the basic idea is 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 sort of bringing out that old story again that high street bank customers are loyal even when they have no reason to be um you know one consultant brought out the this that old stat you're more likely to get divorced than you are to change your bank i mean i oh that's by the way that was somebody from deloitte (laughs) (laughs) i was going to avoid that but it's almost as bad as the one that says that people hate their bank more than going to the dentist yeah it's it's so trite um uh, we we you know so we we were not particularly won over by this article so to to sort of to challenge that and to check that it wasn't just us being old and jaded in the banking industry we sent our team out to ask people on the street if they had heard of challenger banks and if they hadn't heard of challenger banks had they heard of monzo or starling um so let's hear what people had to say do you know what a challenger bank is yeah but i don't really know what they are no challenger bank no idea. No. 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 Yes. Which one? Monzo. Have you heard of Monzo and Starling? Yeah. Yes. I have Monzo. That's a challenge bank. Oh, is it? Okay. So you have Monzo. Yes, I have Monzo. But you don't know what a challenge bank is. No. Yes. So I have a Monzo. Yeah, I have a Monzo card. Um, I think it rings a bell, but no, I'm not about Monzo. Yeah. Not. Yeah. Yeah. Monzo. Yeah. Yeah. Monzo. So, generally speaking, we have this kind of terminology confusion again. We don't really know what a challenger bank is, but they really do know what Monzo and Starling are. So, what's you know, I, I think that the, the awareness is there. The question is always going to be who's using them. What interests me about this story is how much we get lost in this term challengers versus not challengers um, and how much we be, get stuck in the banking bubble. And it's interesting to hear from the great British public somewhere near Oldgate um, that uh, that generally people associate with a brand they don't necessarily associate with how we try and term things and and that's kind of a consistent theme i love this quote from hsbc's head of digital um The digital challenger banks have raised the bar on customer experience, but what distinguishes HSBC is that we maintain the human element. The ability to walk in or call is always there. I want to I want to pick a bone with with uh, HSBC's head of digital because I think the human element is what separates a great challenger bank uh, from from anybody else. If you've dealt with uh, Revolut, uh, especially if you've dealt with Monzo and Starling, like there's uh, or even many other brands in the US as well. I, I've heard great things about Venmo's support. This idea that I can get access to a human, I can chat to a human. I get a really human feel from the brand and it displays a lot of human values in a way that a branch sometimes doesn't. A branch has this computer says no issue and you've got this person being really nice to you. So I don't know that that's true. I take a different angle on this. So I, first of all, I do fully uh, endorse what you're saying there in terms of if you look through the reviews for the likes of uh, Monzo and Starling, they're really positive. What I do find contrasting, though, is actually when you look at, I think it's Tom Bonfeld, he's talked quite often about almost like a North Star, you know, the North Star of this business being that, you know, looking at admiration or in an admirable way towards, say, WhatsApp. WhatsApp managed to scale to 300 million customers with 55 engineers or something like that. I might have butchered that figure. But that ability to serve that wide a group is insane. You know, and his aspiration to go after a billion customers that's amazing but he wants to do it in the same way as whatsapp so how the hell do you do that in terms when you talk about customer service and again it all then comes down to the infrastructure and ability to actually create something which is self-service so that you don't need to go and actually engage with customers customer agents if you go back and talk about annual reports the one thing that monzo said in theirs which came out earlier this year was that um the the major cost that still hangs around on their account so they've brought their cost per account down from 60 pounds to 15 pounds per account to run right now um and a lot of that 
that is still like ten pounds of that is is having humans on the end of their chat service to to help people out with problems and queries. So they understand the need to maintain the, the human contact. They also um, what they said in their annual report is they're trying to move away from that and they're trying to find as many ways as possible that they can make it self service. So building out an FAQs or you know working out other ways that they can interact and answer people's most basic questions in an intelligent way without needing to pay the people. But it's an incredibly difficult balance to strike. I was going to say that the the beef I have with this article is that it's always talking about the challenger banks, are they the future of banking? And it's putting their whole model into doubt when it's, to me, too early to say. I mean, it took, what, 20 years for PayPal to become really mainstream? We, I, I don't like it when they make these kind of predictions when... You know that I think that one of them or or a handful of them will survive. We still don't know which ones, but um, the article kind of mis- misses the yeah. whole point. Yeah. I think the only pe- the, the only thing around that point there though is more around how they're actually scaling their actual operations. So I think Monzo in particular is very focused on a microservice architecture. And I think they managed to. I saw a stat somewhere where they managed to reduce seventy five percent in terms of their infrastructure costs by actually moving across to Kubernetes. And, and again, it's they're looking at things completely different that a bank can't right now. And that means that those reductions in savings they can put into customer service agents whilst they work out how do you automate it to service an even wider group of people. I think that's the really important point. And what that enables you to do is take advantage of what digital gives you. I think a lot of people see digital as having an app. But so you can't do real-time notifications if your core system won't let you do it. Batch and real-time don't combine very well. And, and so you can really dramatically reduce cost if you're using a modern architecture and the journey for a little lot of large organizations to get there i think is going to be the challenging point which links back to the first story of why you know starling and others might be looking to become service providers yeah i mean i think long story short our biggest issue here is the way this article is written the fact that it feels like it was written about 10 years ago um if you want to hear what's really happening in the challenger banking space then i suggest you go and listen to episode 242 of fintech insider where we spoke to tom blomfeld and Bowden and uh, Anthony Thompson from uh, of, of many, many challenger banks, in fact, who gave us their side of the story. And that's, that's well worth a listen. But I'm going to move us on to a potentially new challenger bank, I would say it's fair to call them. Uh, so Goldman Sachs, um, they're bringing their Marcus brand to the UK. So the Telegraph picked this up initially, but it's been all over the, the press this week that Goldman Sachs have started rolling out their retail banking brand Marcus um, in the UK with uh, with with their own staff, basically, so they've offered the the savings account. Um, the Marcus brand has both a savings account and a and a, a lending product as well. Um, they've offered that to six thousand of their staff in Britain. Uh, Marcus, if you're wondering about the name, it comes from the Goldman Sachs founder's name, which is Marcus Goldman. It's already amassed more than twenty billion dollars in deposits in the U.S. and lent three billion to customers over there. Um, in an internal memo, Goldman's Europe boss Richard, oh goodness, I'm going to butcher this, Node. Uh, said a nationwide rollout would follow in the coming weeks. Um, the reason that this does so well is because uh, this brand does so well, sorry, is because they offer on the savings account very, very high interest rates, rumoured to be 1.5% in the UK, um, and on the lending side, very, very low interest rates, um, which you can see why that is popular. Um, Goldman hopes the retail banking uh, brand and launch, w- sorry, the launch of the retail banking brand push will help it hit its target of increasing revenues by $5 billion by 2020. The key step for me in this one is that uh, that 1.5% interest rate uh, for savings compares to about 0.55% as an average. So In the UK yeah, or in the US? In the UK. Well, in Europe is terrible. I mean, Germany is probably just as bad, I'd assume. Yeah, and, and I think this is the this is the thing. You can acquire customers by being top of the league table, and then if you can hook them with a great service on the back of that, then that's. A fa- I mean, Atom have done a similar thing, I believe, which is you know, top of the league table um, offerings in terms of lending, and then acquiring a significant number of customers using that route um, on the price comparison websites. What's interesting t- to me about um, Marcus is. They, you know, Goldman are actually starting from a, a greenfield perspective here. They have very mature investment banking infrastructure, but they didn't really have a retail banking offering. Unlike uh, J.P. Morgan and Chase that came together to be J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, this is Goldman didn't have the retail banking side. And initially, they looked at this when investment banking got a lot less uh, profitable after two thousand and eight. 
getting deposits in and having deposits on your balance sheet becomes a way to in- fund having an investment banking operation because their profits were down. Uh, so this is a you know, really interesting strategic move, but it's also uh, kind of awoken the US market to a certain degree. Now you see Finn from Chase, um, you see Marcus as being like the two leading lights of mainstream brands. And there's something about Goldman that weirdly... Even in the consumer perception, people sort of know who Goldman is. Wait, wait, wait. Well, yeah. Don't you remember in 2010 when the Rolling Stones said that Goldman is the great vampire squid that is relentlessly jamming its blood funnel into anything that smells like money? Wow, graphic. I mean, but isn't it amazing how quickly people forget and how easily they can be bribed with an interest rate? They can be bribed with an interest rate. I think there's a few things here. One is that I do not put Marcus and Finn in the same bracket at all. Like, Marcus is going after people who have money and want to make more money, which is what they've always done. Goldman, people, the people who go to Goldman, in my mind, are the people who are like, oh, Goldman. It's like people who want a platinum Amex. It's aspirational, yeah. I've got a Goldman account. Whereas the people who go to Finn are... I don't know yet because it's only been out there for a while, but I suspect will be the much younger, underbanked people looking to tag him, tag their expenditure with emojis, which is what you can do with Monza in the UK, but you're struggling to do in the US. The, the thing for me is, fine, fair play to them. They can do this. They've got the money. So Atom, when we look, we talk about losses of challenger banks, Atom are probably hemorrhaging the worst because of the way that they've gone to market with doing the same thing, offering which high is interest what rates. what Santander did when they came to the yeah. UK. Um, um, but, but to me... When Goldman come, I think when this opens up, I think they're just going to wipe the floor because they have a brand that people trust and have heard of above and beyond Atom, which I would argue is still struggling with awareness. It's not that they're not trustworthy brand, but I don't think people are aware of them in the same way they are of Goldman. Their advertising is spot on. If you haven't seen their mattress advert, go and look for it. It's brilliant. Like money under the mattress dusty situation and you know fine it's a high interest rate but they can sustain that for a really really long time we're starting to see that it's not particularly easy to go in and eat a bank's lunch as an altfoy uh lender and the banks are definitely starting to fight back so they're gonna defend the turf and if you look at marcus you know in terms of when they launched in the states it's done phenomenally well you know it's managed to originate and distribute three billion in loan volumes in its first year that's that's crazy so i don't know how long it took lending club to do that but there's a perception that goldman's was a little late to the game or were they and Uh, that's a very important point maybe their timing was spot on exactly a question i have is what are they planning on doing is it only going to be savings and loans well they bought so the way that as far as I remember this correctly, um, they bought the account book from GE Bank, General Electric Bank, and that gives them the license to kind of do what they want. So there's this really boring thing in America where they um, made them split out investment banks and retail banks um, after various stock market crashes. And gold, that's why Goldman didn't have a retail bank, because they were forced to, to split those two sets of operations apart. And then they were allowed to bring them back together again more recently. Um, so they bought that book from General Electric Bank or GE Bank. So they could do anything they want. That's the question. <laughs> Are they going to start offering credit cards, a current account? Like, where does it go from there? I think credit cards is the obvious next move. Uh, to me, yeah. anyway. For mm-hmm. aspirational sort of, uh, see, you know, that kind of brand. What Again, I want to come back to the point you made earlier, Ryan, which was um, the Monzo side and the Starling side. When they've got these modern platforms, they can execute at a completely different yep. cost base. Um, that, that's really radical. If the big banks start figuring out, well, hey, we can we can do this. That's the playbook. That's the playbook. But can they do it successfully? Because I can try and be, I can use the tools somebody else does. I can put on an airline pilot's outfit, but I can't make a plane fly. Um, And if I could, I'd be just pushing buttons and hoping for it. You can, you can theorize that banks might have taken these tools and not been able to make them work. In fact, this is kind of proving the opposite. And I think that's the interesting theme is big banks can do interesting things, which contrasts with um, the statement that came out of HSBC's digital chap earlier, um, head of digital, who said, don't worry, we've got um, branches and telephone lines. And it's like, well, that's not a defense. That's not a that's not a strategy. Like, that's just being hopeful. Whereas what Marcus are doing, what Finn are doing, and what others I think are doing uh, could be could be much more effective. And if that's good for customers long term, great. Like yeah. I think the customer yeah. is the winner there. The interesting thing about Marcus as well is that they've built that all themselves. So Goldman has a history of building technology and selling it to other people, and they have built Marcus from scratch. And it didn't take them as long as you would have thought yeah, it would. But they, they they need to start actually executing in something which is you know I say digitally you know ahead of the times because where they are actually losing the battleground right now 
there was quite an, there, there was an interesting report that came out, and it was actually, in fact, it was tracking staff from Goldman Sachs and where they were do, going for the second jobs, and it's so showing this um, pilfering across to uh, Gaffer. So they're losing staff in terms of the graduates, hand over fist right now. And again, it's just not an exciting place for graduates like the the high high end to go to so they need to come up with innovative new departments divisions to actually retain staff or even attract them in the first place because it isn't as appealing as it used to be if you're you know a bright graduate coming in and you're coming from an ai or machine learning background you know do you want to go work in an investment bank or do you want to go work in amazon and alexa you know and and it's completely different i'm sorry i don't understand your question (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done. Um, so JP Morgan uh, had a headline, uh, I think just uh, yesterday, so Wednesday the 29th, where um, they've hired a former Google exec as their head of AI and machine learning. And I think the fact that they want to put out headlines like this suggests to me that they they really, really, really want that talent. Um, and I think there's a recognition in the big banks now that, oh my God, we need the talent. But having the talent's not enough because the talent will get bored very, very quickly. Yep. If you don't have the culture, the technology, the platform, the processes to enable them to execute and the brand they feel an affinity with. Yeah. Starling announced uh, recently that they were partnering with Raisin, which is... Deposit taking. Yeah. Deposit taking. People are able to go onto that platform and get the best deal. So back to the interest rate point on Goldman Sachs, clearly a trend. I I don't think it'll move the needle much, but... And to tie that in, that's part of their banking as a service because Raisin are using their API. But I am going to move on because our next story, it goes from one one big grand American name to another. Um, Warren Buffett has invested in Paytm. Uh, This is a little bit misleading. Um, What's actually happened is that Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett's company, has made moves to buy a 4% stake of Paytm's parent company. Company, uh, 197 Communications, uh, which I always thought was very snappy. Um, <laughs> the talk's apparently been ongoing since February, but as part of the deal, Berkshire Hathaway will pay between 300 and 350 million to Paytm, which is the subsidiary of the parent company. But that would give that subsidiary a valuation of over 10 billion dollars, which is a huge. The second point is that that move marks Berkshire Hathaway's entry into the Indian market. So, like, that's an Another seriously interesting step to have made. Huge endorsement for two reasons there. Uh, you know, first of all, huge vote of confidence for the Indian economy, especially in terms of coming from Berkshire Hathaway. And then equally endorsement from, you know, somebody like Warren Buffett, who has been, you know, I'd say bearish at best when it comes to certain technologies. Simon, you're looking at me right now. And like, I hate to say it, but like, my God, like, you know, the man is cynical about cryptocurrencies. Like, he's gone out there and what he's kind of come out saying is, is quite scathing. Well, and, and this is the, the the guy who literally wrote the book on patient investing, long-term investing, um, but he was a big, big believer in IBM and has pulled his shares out of IBM at last and gone and gone deep into Apple. I think the important thing here about Paytm is they, they were founded in August 2010 um, and in 2017, they did $120 million of revenue. Um, so this is... Uh, I can, an extension of the trend we saw starting in Southeast Asia, especially around uh, Alibaba, Alipay, and uh, WeChat, whereby payments become central to the growth of economies in emerging markets and PESA, and you see it across Africa as well. Berkshire Hathaway moving there. I always see Berkshire Hathaway as investing for the really long term and seeing long term growth. You know, they, they invested in um, American railways, they, they invest in infrastructure. So this to me feels like an infrastructure investment uh, and a really key one, um, which sort of says that the key strategic battleground uh, for emerging markets is payments as the gateway to adopt digital rather than digital as the gateway to adopt payments. I mean, to a certain extent, yes. But remember what 197 Communications does. They do payments. They do telcos. They do logistics. So actually, this is an investment in the people who run a huge amount of the infrastructure of India. This is like going, we're going to invest in the Indian Google to a certain extent because 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 whilst it is a big story that Paytm is getting a chunk of this money, you can't forget what the rest of that business does. And it's kind of like, if you're going to make a bet in India, that's probably the safest bet you can make. Um, which is which is you know actually not that funny when you think about the fact that uh, international money has sort of been slow to move into the end market. The the Indian government have kind of been trying to make it easier for international money to come in. They, they made some changes to regulation last year to try yeah. and encourage it. I was going to say because you saw um, what was it Walmart buying Flipkart for uh, so sixteen billion dollars uh, earlier in the summer. So 
It is interesting comparison to, say, China, where that is an absolute no-go territory in terms of international investment. So for me, so the, the mobile leapfrogging piece is, is again, it's a great uh, ecosystem out there. So 900 million mobile connections. You know, I think the stats are saying that Indians spend 45% of their incomes on mobile technology and platforms. And that's in comparison to Americans at 11%. So again, you know, if you start looking at that and you start thinking about adoption and where the, what's the saying um, in terms of skate to where the puck is going, you know, this is a prime example where he's looking at where's the emergence of the next billion people going to come into the middle class. Was and that that's a Wayne it. Gretzky quote just for Bob McLean? Oh, yeah. Yes. So the point being that uh, this is a, a great investment for them to have made. It makes perfect sense from, from my perspective. The interesting thing is, um, and this in fact links us nicely to our next story, uh, which is that talking of Google... And talking of payments, Google Tez, which is Google's payment, which was Google's payment proposition in India, has rebranded as Google Pay, which is the brand they use in the rest of the world. So um, last September, Google launched Tez, which is an app for instant money transfers in India. Um, now the company has announced it's rebranding the app to Google Pay. So um, quite why it wasn't called Google Pay originally is kind of up for debate, but largely to do the fact that it uses different sort of technology. I think it uses a Bluetooth technology rather than NFC. Um, I, old Ryan well, thinks... I, I assumed that in terms of Tez was pure, in terms of the name itself was purely about localization so tez in hindi actually means fast right see that makes much more sense i will take that (laughs) Um, one of the the interesting features of tez is they have this um audio sonic um capability so if you've got a really uh low quality phone that doesn't even have bluetooth capability or on very good uh internet access you can use uh like sound audible sound to make a data connection between two devices and make a peer-to-peer payment even if you have no connectivity so really really cool feature um so i actually haven't used any of them in India. So I haven't been to India in a while. It, but what, what's the difference between the Paytum and the Tez? So, so they're, they're basically just, um, well, sorry, Ryan, did you want to explain? Yeah, so I was going to say, so I could be wrong, so jump in at any point. So I believe uh, in terms of Google Play, so that takes a, it takes a different approach to the payments customer journey. So it takes a clear steer of Paytm. So Play is built on top of a UPI. So users transfer money from one bank account to another, um, which is connected to the uh, Play app itself. So yeah, so you without so, storing any money in, yeah. inside of Google Play. For explanation, UPI is the Indian built um, sort of uh, payments rail, but also it kind of is this thing where it gives everybody um, a digital identity, which means that rather than having to have a bank account, you can receive money. Um, so as Ryan says, Google have built their service on top of that. Um, the the announcement that they've rebranded to Google Pay also came alongside the announcement that they will now enable users to avail of pre-approved bank loans through the app. Um, initially. So the, the differentiation they had is that um, exactly as Ryan said, you can have transactions without needing people to share bank account info. So you just kind of it's a digital kind of like, here's my UPI ID. So give me the money that way. So they're using the Indian system to do that. Um, and with Paytum, no, pay, pay, you have to give people your bank account info then? I think that's a phone number based system as far as so, I understand so, it. So um, Paytm allows you to use UPI as well. Um, the the difference was it it there was a fundamental different journey. That was the key point. The the journey around Google Tez was really solving for uh, the bottom end of the market. Paytm was starting more with the people who already had bank accounts. But they're converging towards the same space, which is growing their their payments architectures. Paytm starts out looking a little bit like a Venmo or a Square Cash. You've got your mobile number, you look, you've got your mobile address book, and the mobile number is linked to an underlying bank account or card um, capability. India is quite unique in having UPI the universal payments infrastructure. Um, there has been an effort in the UK to do something similar. It was called PayM, confusingly. Um, not PayTM, but PayM. And this was um, a, a similar initiative to create a list of mobile numbers and link those to a list of bank accounts so that you could have this kind of universal reference point. So it's interesting seeing these different mechanisms sort of play out. What's interesting here as well is the numbers. So um, 22 million people and businesses use, use Google Pay in India, um, but their annual run rate of uh, $30 billion worth of transactions across the country that's their annual run rate not their revenue you compare that to the revenue of paytm not paytm's parent but paytm itself uh, it's quite significantly different which suggests it's not nearly get done as much as um as the as the paytm has so far but who knows maybe they're going after yeah. a different segment sorry so using the upi they don't make any money because that's they can't charge on that by using the upi system so i think that's why they've brought the loans in i think that's kind of like this is where we're going to try and monetize this there's a classic kind 
down of like that's how we're going to bring the money in and if you've not seen the journey alexa you know you could check out 11 fs pulse right <laughs> i am not a member uh, well look we can fix this <laughs> we have the technology we can make Brilliant. you and we can get you an account for 11 fs pulse you're a friend of the show now thank you so the government as we all know back in uh what was it 2016 banned the use or tried to ban cash with uh oh uh, yes yeah with their what did they call it the demonetization with the bid to make india's economy less it a, cash it was the, de- political, the demon yeah, it was a political oh, strategy yeah. but it was <laughs> and and it sounds like the growth of payments in india has actually been declining and is back to the pre-currency ban levels before the 2016 so like it did really well when the announcement was made and then it's kind of like back down and i'm not sure what that means for the google plays and the pain tough i I was gonna say so so the interesting thing on that when you um actually rewind back to the last story that we're talking about in terms of warren buffett so buffett again has been quite outspoken about not just the crypto side, um, which I think he compared to rat poison, which is pretty strong. Uh, yeah. the, but, you, Buffett. Yeah. The other side is that he's also been very outspoken in terms of missing out on the likes of Google um, and Amazon previously. And, you know, again, he was very bearish on those previously and he's very bullish now. At the same time, there is this collision course that's coming ahead in terms of Google Play and Paytm. And you, you just think he's now kind of back in a different horse and he's saying, right, let's back these guys and let's see what they can do. Yeah, I mean, I think that, again, to, to wrap those two stories together, India is one of the, the biggest next battlegrounds for what, whatever company, whatever sort of company you are, whether you're a payments company, a search com- company, an e-commerce company like that, as Ryan mentioned earlier, is where the home of the, the next million dollars is coming from in terms of, com- of consumer spend and billion dollars and trillion dollars of consumer spending. That's where it's coming from. So you want to be there. You want to be there to play, right? Whether you're Google, whether you're Paytm, whether you're Warren Buffett or anybody else. You want a foot in the door of India. And on that note, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back very shortly. Imagine a new era of banking defined by an end-to-end digital platform that is open, packaged, and upgradable. Harnessing real-time data to enrich client lives. Adopting the cloud to increase speed, agility, and scale. Using APIs to create platforms and ecosystems that redefine value in a world of open banking. It's time to reshape banking. Temenos, with 25 years of experience spanning 3,000 banks in over 150 countries, helps banks achieve their digital vision faster. Welcome back to Fintech Insider by 11FS. So we've given research reports the 11FS overhaul. Um, I've actually just released my latest free report for 11FS Pulse, um, which is on best-in-class SMB financial services. And it's amazing. It's got interactive media, it's got infographics, it's got animations, videos, sound bites, anything you could possibly want. It's also got great writing, let's be honest. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, you, I, how could I say no? I was, I was engaged by the writing. I mean, Simone's graphics, shout out to Simone, but still, the writing. You need to read this stuff, people. Read it. Um, so there's insight and interviews from the likes of Fluidly, Asto, Zero, many, many more. Um, you can watch the real-term user journeys uh, from behind the customer login screens. Um, Surely we're not allowed to see behind the login screens. Shh, we're just going to sneak peek. Oh, okay. A sneaky peek. Um, but if you want to read the report, on which you do, you definitely do, please head over to 11fspulse.com and click research. Yay. So, uh, back to the news. The first story we are going to talk about is from Forbes. Uh, it is that the Tally app has raised $42 million, uh, in which, with which it is going to launch a robo-advisor to manage Americans' credit card debt. So, Tally is a three-year-old service that aims to help users better manage their credit card debt. Um, it plans to launch a robo-advisor to help them do that. So, right now, uh, it basically takes... Uh, you. you, you, you Put in all your data from all your credit cards. Um, it analyzes it. You have to have a relatively high credit score, it must be said, of, of 660 or above, which is on the American system quite high. Um, and then what it will do is work out the best way for you to pay those credit cards off uh, with one payment a month rather than however many credit cards you have. The interest rate will be between 7.9% uh, and 19.9%, depending on your user, your credit history, how many cards you have, etc., etc., etc. Essentially, it replaces the credit card debt with a single personal loan. So you can keep using your cards and keep getting all your rewards, but you only make one payment a month at a lower interest rate. So it's, it's really quite appealing to the, them, their Americans, who really like using their credit cards. Um, 
Um, the new service they're launching with all this new money they've got is called Tally Advisor. And basically, it helps the user come up with a specific date for when you'll be debt free based on your income, your spending, your current balances, your level of debt, all that kind of stuff. And then basically, if you have like a financial setback, so your boiler breaks and you have to spend a thousand pounds in a month fixing that, it will readjust it. So it's, it's basically helping you manage your money better. And, and Tally themselves have said that their next step after that is to launch more tools that help you manage your broader financial life life rather than just your debt so um it's an interesting proposition and um, we actually spoke to doug bobbenhouse our now official u.s correspondent for his take on this app um, and its potential impact on u.s credit card debt so tally's approach to credit card debt consolidation looks really sound and it looks like a great way to manage situations for people who have multiple open credit card accounts especially those who uh, really like the rewards component of, of credit cards i think that a lot of a lot of credit cards get opened in the U.S. with the promise of cash back and, and other kinds of uh, rewards, and people end up with lots of accounts open that, that they maybe shouldn't have opened. And so, uh, so their opportunity to get themselves into, into a debt situation is uh, rather treacherous in some cases for people who don't know how to help to manage their money. I think the Tally's approach to um, to consolidation is is pretty great and, and, and super, especially for responsible people. A responsible Tally is a great option. Brown, the founder, points out in his uh, in his comments that eighty one percent of people feel that debt refinancing makes it easier to accumulate more credit card debt, and I think that that's true. And that would be the thing that I would caution uh, about this product: um, if if you pay your credit cards off using Tally, your credit cards will appear to have a zero balance, but but you you basically have just moved the debt to Tally. Tally is claiming to have an algorithm that that helps pay off the highest uh, you know debts first, and I think that that's great. But I still think that there's a, a challenge with. Um, with the idea that you know you're moving your debt from one place to another, um, even if the interest rate is lower, uh, they they technically let you pay it off, you know, as slow or slower than than you might otherwise. Um, so you know some of the some of the fixed rate uh, fixed period um, loans that are out there are uh, are doing very similar kinds of things. Um, Tally's approach, uh, you know. Is, offers the opportunity to lower your interest rate if you're um, if you're paying it off faster, which I think is great. And um, and I also think that, you know, for people, again, who are responsible borrowers and are using credit cards primarily for the rewards, um, this is a really fantastic way to uh, manage your payments in one location. I think that the people who it's trying to help are always going to be in danger. This is a psychological problem more than it is anything else. Um, the credit issuing companies in the U.S. are willing to issue credit to people who uh, seem to have demonstrated an ability to handle it. But at the end of the day, uh, the credit companies are interested in making money by, uh, by taking interest payments. And so even though Tally is, uh, is making a nice consolidation play, um, and offering a, a great algorithm that, that helps pay off the highest interest rate uh, debt first. I still think that it, it creates a situation uh, where people might get themselves into even more trouble. So what do we think of this? I mean, I, I wonder if like for maybe British and, and, and the European you know, users and, and people around the table, it's a slightly weird concept. No, but... I, I, so I think if you actually look at the, U the US market, it's massively over leveraged on credit cards. So anyone who can actually help Americans come to terms with that, like there's an enormous opportunity there. I, personally, I, I just fucking love the idea. Sorry, go on, Alexa. Did you know that the great vampire squad, I mean Goldman Sachs, through Via Marcus, is offering loans for credit card consolidation? So there's clearly a market because... Yeah, yeah. there's definitely a market. What I'm wondering is how do they make money? Ah, so as far, I can answer this because basically what they do is they... Um, borrow money from the banks in bulk and then they pass the savings on to their users they typically wouldn't be available from them so like tally borrows like a million dollars at an interest rate and then it passes that so out. they're taking a, a spread as such yeah i think it's one one percent is what they charge basically on top of the of, of the, the debt you're repaying gotcha it's interesting because this comes back to the theme that we keep coming back to which is the need to put 
people in control of their money and mm. uh, you know sort of 60 to 70 maybe even 80 percent of people manage their money through gut feel most of us don't even have a spreadsheet a budget most of us don't feel in control of our money and anything that puts us in control of our money reduces anxiety anything that reduces anxiety and helps us build credit i mean so many people who think they're building credit with their behaviors and they're just not so yeah. many people don't know how money actually works so this is the sort of thing that i welcome although um generally i'd prefer less debt consolidation into another debt and things that help me build my way out of debt and and i think we need to maybe see some more of that what it is doing though is it is improving transparency and to the point you talked about before i think what i love about it is that whole paternalistic benevolence that they're actually trying to build into the product itself so i I absolutely believe in the you know the size of the opportunity in terms of the states but you know it does look relatively early stage and you know one thing i mean we were talking about uh, beforehand you know if, you, if for example you go on the site and you look at the number of views uh, that have actually come through again it kind of corroborates that part where i don't know how much traction they've got yet but what i would say is again you know i, I definitely believe in the opportunity i think the other thing to actually look at is um jasper and jason who i, was, I did a casual bit of linkedin stalking uh, of the founders so these, uh, yes the founders yeah and just two uh, blokes. yeah just two blokes just basically casually stalking on linkedin <laughs> and um what you can see is that, you know it ain't their first rodeo you know these guys are veterans you know they've already exited uh, once quite recently they've worked with, with each other so they know what they're doing um, and they seem to be executing well right now yeah i mean i think um definitely one to keep an eye on i think generally the the theme and the theory is is for the benefit of both the users and the american credit market generally so and it sounds like they've got a good track record so we will keep an eye on them um Talking of keeping an eye on, and I'm going to say this wrong, A16ZZ? Whatever you want. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at Simon. Helps to raise $102 million to build an Amazon Web Services killer. Again, this name is um, incredibly difficult. Definity? Yep, perfect. Uh, raises this much money. Thank you. So, actually, Simon, you know what? You go, because this is your definitely your area. I'm just going to let you I'm going to let you run with this. I one. am losing my shit over this. This is incredible. Um, so A16Z, or Andreessen Horowitz, um, Mark Andreessen, Ben Horowitz, were the founders of a venture capital firm. They're arguably the poster child um, Silicon Valley venture capital firm. Investments like Facebook, Twitter, Airbnb, you name it, they're... Uh, Kind of investments reads like a who's who of kind of big companies of the last couple of decades. The interesting thing is how much the whole crypto market is in a bear market. How much we like um, we like the blockchain, but we don't like Bitcoin. This is a real counter move to that. This is a real different move to that. And Definity um, is calling itself an internet computer to rival AWS. So Definity is a company effectively that they've invested in as well as a network they've invested in. What's AWS? Amazon Web Services, arguably the poster child for cloud-based services, the thing that most new internet companies are built on, Amazon Web Services or Google or or now Microsoft Azure. Um, So what's interesting about this is the investment comes from A16Z who have named previously three megatrends that they were looking for in 2010. Their three megatrends were cloud, uh, I think, social and mobile. And I think as we sit here in 2018, you go, yeah, they called them about right. The three megatrends right now are uh, machine learning, which, yeah, you can kind of see, Internet of Things, all right, yeah, I kind of get it, maybe it's got a little ways to go, and they didn't say blockchain, they said crypto. And that, to me, they called it A16Z crypto, and they talk about trust being a new software primitive, so I think that's super interesting. And when you say crypto, again, are you splitting up crypto in the whole tokenization side of things, or...? What specifically? Yeah, so they're talking about uh, permissionless blockchains, which are uh, which have a cryptocurrency and run without a central, obvious authority. So there's no one organization that owns or runs. Totally decentralized. Uh, nah, see, yeah. that's not necessarily. So the interesting thing about Definity is they come along and they call themselves Cloud 3.0, um, but in the blockchain space, we call them like a 3.0 platform because um, the, they're the third generation of bit of um, blockchain platform. The first generation is Bitcoin, very simple, very blunt, does what it does. Second generation is Ethereum and things like it. Uh, Considered 
a little bit slow, but considered truly groundbreaking. And then Definity, this is kind of somewhere between the cloud services we have today in Ethereum. It's this really interesting mix of incredibly uh, tenured professionals who've been there and done it before. If you go to the Definity.org website, you see you know, previous staff engineer at Google who built the virtual machine for Chrome, um, previous um, Stanford PhD, previously um, built the compiler for Haskell, previously built C-sharp the language. Like, th this is a, the most ridiculously talented team uh, that just got 102 million from the kind of the most, you know, the poster child investors. Go look at this. I'm going to shut up now. <laughs> I mean, if you would like to hear more on this um, area... I'm going to say, because this is an area that I, whilst I know about investing, a lot of the words that Simon just said completely went over my head. If you, like me, are a novice um, when it comes to blockchain and all it involves, please do go and listen to our sister podcast, Blockchain Insider. Episode 61 is out now. And you're going to hear a lot more of Simon uh, explaining all this stuff in ways that normal humans can understand, which I think is part of the biggest problem, actually, when we get to stories like this. You think, okay, that sounds amazing. And Jason Harowitz are investing. What? <laughs> yeah, we, we slow it down on that show and we, we take our time with it. But we've, we're running up against time, so we're going to get to the next story. Yes, we are. So the next story is that uh, Wonga, there's, actually the story was from earlier this week, which uh, was from Sky News, that Wonga is on the brink of collapse. It has now, some might say, collapsed. Um, so originally, uh, well, earlier this week, basically, there were, there were rumours um, that there was a huge deluge of customer compensation claims uh, striking the company and they were struggling to keep up. Um, as of today, which is Thursday... Um, um, they have put uh, a statement up on their website which says that they have stopped issuing new loans. They are continuing to assess their options. Um, existing customers can still use their services to manage their loans. Um, a few weeks ago, we actually talked about how they just got a £10 million cash injection, which was designed to help them cover all these problems and, and tide them over. Um, but despite that, they're obviously it, it is clearly not enough money. For me, this is incredibly distressing because I feel like a lot of Wonga's customers are incredibly vulnerable people. Yeah. That's what I was just thinking. Like, what happens to those people? Because Wonga's just a payday lender, right? Who kind of made it cool with no, I, puppets. Yeah, the whole puppet thing, Jesus. Like, <laughs> I, I will miss those the ads. Where the fuck do you really start cool. with that? Like, it's, <laughs> it's insane, like, the distaste that that actually brought to the market. So the, the Wonga, what I would say, like they definitely were, you know, one of the early weirdly fintech poster childs. I, I even hate saying that. But actually, but if were. you go back five years ago, six years ago, you know, again, I, I was an early subscriber to CB Insights and things like that. And you'd regularly see them talking about, you know, this this firm over in Europe that's kicking ass and that's growing. And again, if you look in terms of the actual numbers, in terms of what Wonga had, you know, it's quite insane if you go back to 2013. You know, they had over a million customers. I think, you know, kind of the irony here isn't lost to me, not for one second. Yeah, and I, and I definitely would agree in terms of the predatory nature in terms of the lending, which I do find very distasteful. And I think, you know, how the FCA came in, you know, they actively singled out Wonga um, and specifically some of the tactics that they were deploying into the market, which I think if people aren't aware, you know, it was all about how they're actually regaining uh, payments uh, from some of the customers by pretending to be, um, I think it was, I, say, I think it was solicitors of different people. Anyway, sorry, I digress. Go on. Uh, no, you don't digress, because I, th I think the whole point of them is that they were held up as this fintech poster child, as you said, and actually when you looked into how they got to where they got to, so they were, you know, going to pursue a New York stock market listing, for, which yep. would have valued them more than a billion dollars, and they would have become one of those, you know, first fintech unicorns, and actually the way in which they built the one that got away. Grown. Come on. Simon, seriously. No, I, I, the pun foo is usually strong with you, Ryan, but that let me down. <laughs> I think the I, IPO listing, the Wonga, that, do, do I have to actually spell no, it? We, no, we got it. We got, we got it. it. We got okay. it. Okay. Um, <laughs> what, I, what I'm, I'm going to do is wrap that up and move us on. So I think the point is that it's distressing to see a company fail like this. It's distressing to see a company that might take some vulnerable people down with it as it fails. Um, but I think there are huge, huge amounts of lessons that can be learned from this. And I think we're actually already, they're already being learned and already being implemented. When you look at the way that the FCA is treating the new types of loan companies that are coming out there and the way that it's approaching the regulation of those companies, I think I think in the long run it will be beneficial, but just right now it, it is incredibly painful and damaging, I so, would say. Yeah, so the stats that came out were 13 million people in the UK 
were cash and credit constrained. So again, you, you kind of wonder what then happens to them. Yeah, I mean, and the FCA is looking into that. And, and I know that the FCA and the administrators are working to work out how to help the most vulnerable customers first. But obviously, that would depend on what they can do. Um, so moving us on, the final proper story, if you like, of today's show is from the BBC. And basically... Um, the headline is, Are Checks Checking Out? So there has been a debate over the future of checks. Um, the fact that, oh, sorry, um, caused by a pay dispute at a company that's been printing checks for more than 100 years. There's there's basically a trade union dispute going on and this company's going to strike and they're all saying it's going to be a huge problem because we're not going to print any more checks. And everybody's going, really? Is it? Like, are we worried? Are we worried? I don't know. So we sent our intrepid explorers out onto the streets to see when was the last time you wrote a check or banked one or have you actually in fact ever had a check book? So, you know, let, let's hear their responses. Do you have a check book? No. No. Maybe in a dusty box at home. No? No. No, I don't own a check book. <laughs> no. Premium bonds was the only time I'd ever get a check. When was the last time you used a cheque? So the last time I used a cheque was when my grandma sent me one for a Christmas present. <laughs> I definitely don't use cheques. Um, I can't tell you the last time I literally saw a cheque I don't think I ever used a cheque. Never? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> I've you know never a used a cheque before. Years ago. <laughs> a long time ago. I got given one by my um, bank in my when I just set up my business bank account, but I've not touched it. <laughs> I see, yeah, I've got one just collecting dust somewhere. Would you be hamstrung if they disappeared? Absolutely no, I wouldn't change a thing. Strong hamstrings, but we also ran a social poll to see how often you, our listeners, use checks. Um, the current results are seventy-one percent. I don't even remember the last time I used a check. Sixteen percent said in the last twelve months. Nine percent said in the last week, and four percent said in the last month. Um, Anybody around the table remember the last time they wrote a check yeah. or received a check? And so, grandmas don't count. So rather <laughs> embarrassingly, I actually received a check, I think literally just last week. So I've, I actually did some renovation work in the front of my flat. I've got an elderly couple that live on the top floor. Um, I've basically done all the work. They dropped in, uh, to my surprise, they actually dropped in a check to say thank you to uh, contribute towards some of the actual costs. Bless them. Bless, Bless them indeed. The most embarrassing thing, though, when I actually went to take the check into uh, my bank I didn't even realise that you actually had to fill anything in and they hadn't actually filled in my name Aww. so I actually had it returned so I, I actually you managed had a blank to fuck check. up you I had a blank check anything. not the amount unfortunately Aww. just just my name I didn't realise that was a thing I so would say that's a up there with grandmas now. there are a number of banks now that offer um, and it, the US was way ahead of us on this like shout out to the US the ability to take a photo of a check massive fintech innovation like from the sounds of it there's a generational thing and there's a small group of at-risk vulnerable customers who still use checks and there's a need to still support them the interesting thing in the uk is uh, we've had this thing for a couple of years that some of you who work in banks will be very familiar with called the future check clearing model or the future clearing model and this was the idea that by october 2017 all banks would be required to clear checks based on just the image and the data files alone as you can probably imagine, that's not completed yet. Most banks didn't get there because all these things seem to take far longer than they need to. Big change in big bits of boring bits of banks um, are, are the pains that most big bankers have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. And this is the things that the challengers don't have to deal with. When you're born digital and when you build a brand that's yeah, born digital, but then it, you don't the, have to deal with it. It's the lobbying groups that are coming in that basically stopping in terms of like getting rid of the actual check checks altogether. So the worst thing is actually for the banks themselves are actually having to hold on to this legacy infrastructure, this crap legacy infrastructure, because they can't fucking get rid of actually taking on checks. So they have to maintain it. So that's what I was going to say. Actually, um, both Monzo and Starlink have been forced to find a way to accept checks. Both of them, because, um, because, because, and I was saying, grandmas don't count, but grandmas do still send checks. Grandmas totally count. <laughs> well, exactly. But if your if your primary bank is Monzo and your grandma sends you a check for your birthday, you do need to find a way to pay it in. And both Monzo and Starling have got so until the the Monzos and Starlings of the world mature. We will still have checks. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those, it's kind of, it will eventually disappear. Even H, even HMRC I mean, exactly. has finally come around to the idea that back payments exist. Funny enough, in the US, we still get paid or refunds via checks. Oh, so... Um, so I still use checks. We have US. some US clients who send us checks rather than paying us via an electronic method because it's the most efficient way to pay it unless you can Venmo it. And, and seriously, Venmo has become like the, the saviour for us in a few times when we've had expenses or we've had people out in the US we needed to pay, um, as has PayPal. 
to I was going to say to quote my main man Warren Buffett, the che- <laughs> the check is a wonderful idea, but it does not make the check intrinsically valuable. Oh, I like it. I'm going to leave it on that. I'm going to move us on to our and finally story. And I'm going to read the pun, even though producer Laura's crossed it out. We kid you not, this story is the goat. Um, Basically, this story is about goat facial recognition. We misread this story. I'll put my hands up and say it was partly my fault. Um, I thought this was a facial recognition story, which it was, but not quite in the way you may be used to. So the story is that goats can distinguish smiling human faces from frowning ones in photos. And they actively sne- seek out snapshots of happier individuals, um, a study said on Wednesday, which I really liked. Um, and then I sort of went down the path where I thought maybe we could use like goats instead of technology to recognise people's faces, which I, arguably was a tangent. I imagine Apple's modelled their facial recognition technology on the goat. On the goat's brain. Exactly. Yes, I like it makes that. complete yeah. sense. It's a new marketing tool for the digital banks, you know, put up the face of a goat when you're installing your your facial recognition Let's not about this anymore. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that is a, a really lovely story and it's on Yahoo. You can find it. Um, and, and the long story short, that goats really prefer happy, smiley faces. So if you spend any time around goats, remember to smile. I think on Blockchain Insider, we're going to cover the collateralized goat offering as well. Stay tuned. Mm-hmm. And on that note, that wraps up this week's new show. Um, thank you so much to everybody for joining us this evening. Where can people find out more about you, Ryan? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, uh, so Ryan underscore EP, or uh, email uh, ryan.pritchard at fundingoptions.com. Perfect. How about you, Alexa? On LinkedIn, at Alexa Fernandez. Um, I'm at S.Y. Taylor on Twitter, and you can find me moving house this weekend somewhere f- from somewhere to somewhere else. Um, as for me, as always, you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kashansky. Actually, also on Forbes today, if you want to find out the a small secrets, magazine. A, small, a small digital online publication, if you want to find out the truth behind FinTech's customer numbers, go and read my latest article. Oh, it's really interesting. The truth nice. behind the truth. Um, if you guys want to join in the discussion, please uh, log on to fintechinsidernews.com or tweet us at fintech insiders remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode and to really really make our weeks please leave us a review preferably a positive one um thank you so much for listening goodbye